0: Tonight the topic is on being Reformed, and uh, that topic itself is uh, sort of an intramural debate between people in Reformed denomination, what is it that really constitutes a person's belief system that entitles them to say they are Reformed. When I was in seminary, that was a, a what I call a parking lot discussion happening almost after every class, which you learned as much in the parking lot sometimes as you did in the classroom, which is a fascinating thing. But there always seemed to be this question of, I'm more Reformed than you are. Uh, I, I can fine tune you out of the picture and somehow reach ascendancy in the hierarchy of being Reformed. And so I was asked to participate in a panel uh, my senior year, uh, right before graduation, on discussing what impact Reformed Seminary had had upon me in terms of, you know, being Reformed. That was just seemed to be the buzzword that everybody talked about. And I thought maybe since at that time I was a Baptist, they were looking for a conversion experience out of me or something, to move from a Baptistic Worldview and uh, theology to more of a, a reformed one, and I basically said, for me, my three years at this seminary has been an experience of you creating for me a hermeneutic. Now, I don't know if you know what a hermeneutic, hermeneutics is—the science of interpretation—and I said, so what you guys have done for me in all the language classes and all the church history. Uh, In all of the Old Testament, New Testament studies, in all the studies of apologetics and ethics and the doctrine of the church and uh, preaching and all of this stuff, what you guys have done is sort of written a prescription for a pair of glasses through which I now see the world. And it's very different than when I arrived here. So being Reformed isn't merely a theological statement about your theology. But rather, it is an all-embracing concept. Um, for example, and I don't want to pick on Reformed Baptists. I love. I was one, so I, I love them and am still praying. But uh, uh, one thing I've noticed is that Reformed Baptists. Now, this is gradually changing, and I'm glad to see it. But it used to be, if I was a quote five-point Calvinist, then I was Reformed. Well, all that means is you are reformed in one little, very important, but little segment of theology. That's being reformed in a narrow sense in the doctrine of soteriology. You have all the petals on your tulip. You know, uh, you don't, you no longer, the daisy is no longer your flower. You know, the daisies is for Arminians, right? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Yeah, that's a little joke. But but what I'm uh, this is leading me to lead you to this particular class because I think it will help you see that all of us have a worldview, a world and life view, and that's the German word for it. Uh, I my wife works with a woman from Germany, grew up in Germany. Her father was a doctor. Every time I ask this particular woman to help me. Like I had Luther's Anfektungen, And so I would ask her, how do you pronounce, and I would say it. She would look right at me and she would say, onfectungin. And I would say, okay, onfectungin. She'd say, no. <laughs> 20 times she would say no. So I asked her about this word and she would say it. I would say it back and never satisfied. It must be the southern accent or something. She didn't like it. But, uh, all that, uh, what I'm trying to accomplish tonight is first to get you to understand that you have a worldview. What constitutes, what makes it up? How consistent is it? Uh, how informed is it? And then to see how being reformed is really a dimension of a world and life view. It's, it's more than just a theological system. It's more than just the history of the Reformation. It's more, than just a certain way we do church, worship, covenant, what have you. It's it's far more than any one of those things. And that'll be my goal tonight, to help you with that. So how do you say that word? I don't know, do you know how to say it? You lived in Germany, didn't you? Yeah. That sounded more German <laughs> to me. One uh, brilliant writer said that uh, worldview is like a belly button. Everybody's got one. Just don't contemplate it too long. Uh, but worldview is a German term. Immanuel Kant, our good friend Immanuel Kant, came up with the term, which means world and life view. And, uh, in German idealism and romanticism, it was used widely to den- denote a set of beliefs that underlie and shape all human thought and action. And so that's where that word came from. I heard it, let me turn this off. I heard it mostly from, uh, from, um, Dutch professors in seminary, of which I had many, and which I learned the old adage, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. But uh, that was said often to me. And I said, well, I can't help it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I got a good education at reform school. All right, let me shut that down and it won't happen again. All right. So let's get started. And I want to give you a definition of a worldview. Uh, And that's probably, I'll probably give you three or four different ones, but this one I think is helpful that a worldview is not merely a set of basic concepts, but is a fundamental orientation of the heart. And so a worldview isn't just an intellectual thing, but more of an orientation of the heart, of of the whole of man, rather than just his mind. Uh, when I was taught worldview in seminary, it was totally a conceptual framework, was the terminology used, and you'll see that on the paper some. But the uh, the deepest root of a worldview is a commitment to understanding what is really real or what is really true, or what philosophers call being or ontology. Third, uh, a consideration of behavior in the determination of what, what one's own and another's worldview is, is a way of discovering the person's uh, worldview. And a worldview is a broader understanding of how uh, worldviews also grasp stories and not merely abstract propositions. There's been a real reaction. If you keep up with philosophy at all, and you keep up, there's a real hostility now toward propositions, which are statements of true or false. Statements. Uh, They don't like the word proposition, and they're trying to do away with. They're trying to do away with foundations altogether. There's a real non-foundational movement amongst some philosophers as well. But here's the definition of worldview. A worldview is a commitment, a faith commitment, as it were, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story, such as a meta-narrative, the story above all stories, which give everybody's individual story, helps you make sense of life. And so for the Christian, the biblical meta-narrative is the story of all stories uh, that we see reflected in the Bible. Um, So it, it can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions, assumptions that may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation on which we live, move, and have our being. And so first what I'm going to do is give you what a worldview is, what it, what it constitutes, what constitutes worldview. Secondly, going to try to give you a little bit of a flavor of just a basic theistic Christian worldview and finally add reformed distinctives in to give you a reformed world and life view, which is different than just a mere evangelical or Christian worldview. So that's where we're going. All right, a person's worldview is the sum total of everything that person believes. The objects of belief are propositions, stories, Uh, A person's worldview would include uh, all the propositions that means that which is true or false, all the assumptions, uh, they may be conscious or subconscious, beliefs differ in significance and importance, Uh, a worldview is characterized by the way the beliefs are related. For example... uh, uh, what we're looking for is logical coherence in a worldview. What does it mean? What does coherence mean? It, yeah, it fits together, it hangs together. It, uh, and, and logical would be now, here's where you get into differences within the Reformed faith, in the camps. Like R.C. Sproul was a major law of non contradiction guy, uh, he believed very strongly in logic. He would not say that God is subservient to logic, but that God uses logic to communicate to us because we're logically made in his image, and therefore logic makes sense to us. How would we ever be able to trust his word if his word did not possess logic? I think it's an accommodation of God to do that. I think he transcends logic. And I think that's what we get into sometimes when we look at the mysteries in the faith like some of the subjects we've covered, the attributes of God, the Trinity, the uh, one person, two natures of Christ, is that sometimes to erase the mystery, we can try too hard uh, to sort of not figure it out. On the other hand, we can try so hard to figure it out that we lose the mystery and err that way as well. And so what I'm trying to say is logical consistency is important. Worldviews can be inconsistent. They can be, uh, by the way, the law of non-contradiction is if A, uh, what is it, if A, I thought I had it written down here. Yeah, can, yeah at the same time in the same relationship. Yeah, uh, A cannot be A and non-A at the same time the same relationship. God cannot be God and not God at the same time and in the same relationship. And so he used that a great deal in instructing us, whereas some of the more Vantilian types who were more influenced by people who were in that camp basically saw uh, logic as... Uh, there was a complaint often that Spros' logic was too Aristotelian and uh, too Greek, and therefore they rejected it in, in things like mystery because they felt like God transcended that, and that would be a, an error in describing God's nature that way. If you ask me, I think both have a point, but neither has the whole. Uh, there's always an, an, uh, what Packer called an antinomy or a tension between something like the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man uh, or you know God's work and salvation, all of those things, there are irresolvable tensions. We cannot make them come together in a way that satisfies us perhaps intellectually, emotionally and every other way. But uh, uh, those are true. So a worldview includes the differing degrees of certainty and firmness and conviction with uh, which people hold their beliefs. Some are more committed. Uh, The worldview is like a spider web. I'm I'm not a real good artist. I'll just draw a a big circle. It's going to look more like a target. If you're an artist, I know you're just dying here. We'll put the spider right here. Okay. Some beliefs are out here on the periphery. Some are here in the core. A worldview to be consistent, what we're talking about is core beliefs here inside the web, our network of ideas. That's what drives us, that's what shapes and develops our worldview. And so uh, worldviews are beliefs will differ to the kind of influence and control they have over the rest of the beliefs, that's what I'm talking about, just a fundamental core system here. And so a worldview, again, is a conceptual framework rooted in a heart commitment by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. It's a philosophical system in one sense of the word, but it's more than philosophy. Many people don't know what a worldview is or that they have one. My goal is to help you understand that you do have one to achieve a better understanding of it, to improve it, to grow, to el- eliminate inconsistencies, to fill in the holes and gaps. Uh, the right eyeglasses can make the world come into clearer focus. And um, if out of focus, the world doesn't make much sense. So we have to don the right eyeglasses to match up with reality. And so when you think of the concept of a worldview, just think of a pair of interpreted glasses that have a prescription. By the way, and this is a, another sort of uh, Dutch concept, is there are no brute facts. What, what do I mean when I say there are no brute facts? All facts are what? A brute fact would speak for itself, right? A non-brute fact, or saying there are no brute facts, is saying every fact is subjected to a person's uh, interpretation. We see that all the time. Uh, Take, for instance, looking at a fetus. If you're uh, pro-life, you look at the fetus, you see what? A baby. A life. Or a potential for life. Or however. I'm sure the doctors could tell us even more. But if you're pro-abortion, you just see it as what? A glob of protoplasm. Uh, That is unshaped. That is uh, not the glory of The miracle of birth, but rather something to eliminate because it causes distress or hardship in the life. Both are looking at the same thing, looking exactly at the same, maybe even looking at the same sonogram, but they see different things. Why? Because of their worldview. That's why your neighbor seems so crazy to you. Uh, Often when I get around uh, people who are gay, okay? I have a niece that's married to a woman. And occasionally I find myself in social situations with them. And the last thing I talk about is them being gay. You know, I mean, it's obvious they are. But I have watched over the years that they've been together. They've probably been together about five years. And how, at first, they both claimed to be Christians and were involved in Reformed university fellowships at some of the southeastern schools. Now when I sit with them, they are left of left. Absolutely left of left. And I look at them and I'm saying, we're looking at culture, we're looking at society, we're looking at God, we're looking at the Bible. We don't see the same thing at all. Because their worldviews are influenced. See, a worldview is influenced not only by intelligence, but also even by your sin. Or even by your... um Yeah, language, personality, all of those things have a huge play in it. And so, um, I want to get down to uh, the important role of presuppositions. Uh, I don't know if that's right with the outline, but this is where I'm going. Our uh, worldview contained a number of beliefs that we presuppose or accept without support from other beliefs or arguments or evidential Proof. Everybody has presuppositions. Everybody has assumptions. Scientists have assumptions and presuppositions. You cannot not have presuppositions and you can't prove them. You cannot prove them. They're usually regarded as givens. For example, one presupposition I entertain tonight is, you all have minds. If you didn't, well, what would be the point of my standing up here talking to you and trying to teach you? That's a presupposition. I can't prove you do. Unless I talk to you for a long time. But do you see my point? Uh, Presuppositions, we presuppose them. Whenever we think we take some things for granted as givens, the consequences of presuppositions are the most important. Let's say you're in geometry. There are certain axioms in geometry that are presuppositions that you need. Let me tell you, it's hard to pass geometry when you don't have a book for the first six weeks, which I did not in high school. And I'm, I'm not a dummy, but I got lost. Once you get lost in something like that, uh no recovery. Yeah, so when we come to presuppositional beliefs about God, about man, the world, scientists make assumptions all the time... Uh Knowledge is possible, sense experience is reliable, the universe is regular, should be honest and objective, without no validity uh, in, uh, or without honesty, there's no validity in the work. Presuppositions determine uh, method of our thinking. One's presuppositions determine the direction and destination of one's life. For example, when it comes to eschatology, I am not a dispensationalist. I am a covenant theologian. Now, do I think dispensationalists are stupid? No. Do I think they don't believe the Bible? No. Do I think they don't love Jesus? I don't think that at all. Do I think I'm smarter than they are? No. Why do I disagree with them? Presuppositions. They assume that Israel and the church are what? Separate. I assume that the church is the new Israel. And so you can take, they believe in a literal hermeneutic when it suits them. (laughs) Uh, We believe in genre-specific interpretation that you can't make everything a Pauline epistle, especially the prophetic word. So my disagreement with dispensationalism is not personal. It's not that I don't think they, they're brilliant. Some of the smartest people I've ever been with, been around, worshiped together with them, loved them, but I just disagree with their presuppositions. That's the role that presuppositions have. Now, human beings do not always handle matters objectively. This is called the non theoretical foundation of theoretical truth of thought. One of the great corrections of postmodernism, and I hate to give postmodernism much credit, but modernity is also a construct that is not biblically sanctioned. And so postmoderns argue that you can't trust science. Why do they say that? Because they don't believe it's possible to be objective. That nobody is tabula rasa. Nobody's a clean slate. Nobody, a scientist works and does his work, tries to do it objectively, but is that possible? Can we get outside of ourselves and be objective? No, we cannot. So postmoderns are right in so far as they argue that that the scientific method, which I grew up believing was gospel, because I grew up in a modern culture, but now postmoderns have questioned that. Uh, Guys like Michael Poliani and uh, Thomas Kuhn in the structure of scientific revolution have challenged science's uh, complete canon of objectivity by saying, Uh, It all depends on who the scientist is. He might be doing research and the only people that get money are people who believe in what? Evolution. You know, I I hate to know what I know sometimes. It makes me sad. But to know that people will trade off their integrity in whatever work they're doing for money. They do it in my job. Uh, They'll say what people want to hear, uh, even though they may not believe it or live it. So what I'm trying to get at, just understanding the worldview, is it's just a combination of all these things, plus an idolatrous heart and fallen man, plus our loves. We are what we love. I read a book by Jamie, James K.A. Smith, who teaches at Calvin uh, College, I believe. He's a he's a brilliant guy. And uh, there's a book called You Are What You Love. And so a worldview is more than just intellectual. It's more than just cognitive. It has to do with the heart, heart wanting what the heart wants. And that influences, to a great degree, a person's worldview. And so what I'm trying to get at is, there's your basic definition. Now let's talk about... um a worldview, elements of a particular worldview. I think that's the second page, is it not, in your outline? All right. By the way, before I do that, I want to go to that drawing, that masterful drawing on your uh, handout. You see it? This drawing, I think is at least, some people are more visual than they are learning in other ways. But you'll see that a, here we have the conceptual framework or the worldview, that's this curved space. Here we have a guy who is looking at the world and trying to uh, run everything that comes at him through his conceptual framework, and here's the problem, uh, and this does state a problem, is, you see the uh, arrows conceptual recommendation in the world? Um, These are what philosophers spend their whole life doing, is trying to conceive of and construct better ways to understand these issues like ontology, being, axiology, values, Epistemology, how do we know what we know? And so throughout the history of philosophy, everybody's recommending better ways to see and observe reality, interpret it, learn to live in relationship to it. But all of these are horizontal. And then you have conceptual relativity. That would be the person receiving the information through his worldview. But here's the difference between a Christian worldview. Look at the very top of the drawing. There is God's revelation, which is what? The Bible. J.I. Packer once said the Bible is God's index of reality. And so the Bible saves us from what is called the uh, ego-categoric, centric approach to life. In other words, I can't get outside of myself to see whether what I'm looking at is what I'm seeing or what's really real or what's really there. But there is one who transcends the situation, who has described for us all of this, plus who we are, plus how we understand, plus what the world is, what creation is, why He did it. All the information in the Bible becomes the structure of your framework, and that way you're able to judge and ascertain whether or not what's coming at you is true. I mean, how do you argue with people? I think, I think the best way, but most people don't want to argue today. Have you notice that? They just want to call you names. Uh, that is sad. I mean, that's a low point. Uh, nobody wants to debate, even in a gentleman or winsome way. But if you were to debate in a winsome way, you would learn to help a person understand that they have a different set of commitments in their worldview and that you're trying to interject in what are biblical prescriptions for my glasses to see. And that way, I'm not struggling by my subjectivity, and I'm not struggling to interact with somebody else's subjectivity. But the God who is, is both transcendent and eminent. He's near, but He's high and above. And He, who made everything, who made me, who made every conceptual... Uh, idea that's important to us in Scripture gives us the grid. I call it the interpretive grid through which we process everything we come into contact with. So that is a Christian worldview. Now, here are some of the uh, major uh, elements of a worldview, and we'll hit that one. And the last thing we'll do is get into the actual Reformed world and life view. So that's where we're going. It's sort of like saying that... I want to read something that uh, a teacher of mine in seminary, he said, Such a view regarding God's revelation to us of a conceptual scheme in terms of which we are to interpret and respond to reality is particularly directed to the ego or categoric-centric predicament. God stands apart, so to speak, from us and our conceptual schemes, and from reality. Thus, he is uniquely able to provide a particularly accurate account, conceptually, of the nature of things, especially since he is the original designer and creator of things. J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, says of God's words in Scripture that they are the index of reality. They show us things as they really are. Consequently, the appropriating of a Christian conceptual framework is the appropriating of the mind of Christ would provide us with the most approximate way of recognizing reality. A Christian conceptual scheme, that is, a framework comprised of biblically sanctioned categories or ways of thinking about reality, would provide for us the most realistic assessment of the world present to us. For in it, we would be thinking about the world the way God would have us think about, which is the way that it really is. And so i got to get on my horse here because I want to get more into it. But do you see what I'm saying here? That Scripture is the index of reality. God has revealed Himself, both through general revelation and through special revelation. General revelation in uh, creation. We'll talk about common grace in a moment. But the whole issue here is that as adopted children of the Father, as uh, people who are connected to our triune God, We have a unique vantage point of being able to see uh, what's really real, what's true, uh, how we are to live, all of those issues. By the way, most of what's going uh, wild and wrong in our culture today is basically a departure from the categories of revelation we find in the book of Genesis. I am shocked. I mean, what is the whole gender thing? What is the whole uh, redefining myself, uh, coming up with different identities, whoever I feel like and whoever I want to be? The whole thing about emotional intelligence and all that stuff is—it's uh, just a total ignorance of creation and the reformed doctrine of creation—that uh, God, you know, ex nihilo, God created the world out of nothing and He ordered it. Ordered creation. He went to what appears to be a chaotic situation. He brings order to chaos. uh, Forms the world. Fills the world. And gives man work to do. Man is the apex of creation. He is the vice regent of the king in the garden. And He's called to the highest purposes which we will see in a moment. But that's pretty much it. Now, when we get to the concept of elements the major elements of the worldview, we have to ask the question what kind of beliefs, presuppositions, and stories make up or constitute a worldview for the sake of brevity, there are a few general areas that I want to talk about first theology uh, or metaphysics and and god's world what is really real what is Prime reality. Is it God? Or is it the gods? Or is it material? Uh, the material cosmos. That has to do a great deal with how a person sees the world. The nature of God. Theology. Where uh, the most important element of any worldview view of what it, what it says about and does not say about God. Does God exist? What is the nature of God? Is there but one God? Is God personal? Or is he the deistic God that uh, is not hands-on in his operation uh, in the cosmos? Uh, are, should we be monotheists? Is there a dualism between good and evil that each have equal power? Is there polytheism? Um, is God good? Um, is there pantheism? Pantheism is uh, ultimately everything is God and then panentheism is God is in everything and so these are the questions that come up for a person to determine the elements of the world view ultimate reality or metaphysics which we talked about earlier um, epistemology have you ever heard of the word epistemology what does the word epistemology mean? knowing, yeah, how do you know what you know? you know, is knowledge possible? So epistemology is, we all have one, ask, uh, do you believe that knowledge about the world is possible? Can we trust our senses? What are the proper roles of reason, sense experience, and knowledge? Are intuitions of, valuable, of value? Is emotional intelligence for real? Uh, is truth relative? Is religion faith? and reason, or just faith, and no reason, or just reason and no faith, and is the scientific method the best way to achieve objectivity and uh, that. And and the reason why those are issues is you have to remember our good friend Immanuel Kant was a very influential philosopher. And everything about after him is basically pretty much an elaboration on what he did Kant has a wall between what he calls the noumenal and the phenomenal so what's the noumenal? spirit? yeah the numeral would be non-physical, you could call it spirit, you could call it mind, uh, you could call it divinity. In other words, Kant believed that there is a wall that we cannot cross. We cannot get to the noumenal, we only can what? Live in the phenomenal, which is what? That which we can see, that which happens before us, that which is, this is where we live here. And so Kant tried in one fell swoop to destroy uh, any knowledge of God. Although he did like Christian ethics. Did you know that? Yeah, his categorical imperative. And he loved ethics. And he felt like the the church's ethics were good for the culture. It kept things in control and help people from destroying each other, but he didn't believe in God. He's an atheist. So he didn't believe we had access here. Of course, we believe we do, And so that has to do with epistemology. How can we know? Anthropology or the nature of humans, are we highly... Well, let me get to ethics. I didn't talk about it. How do we know what's right and wrong? Uh, is it purely human choice? Is it a gut feeling? Is it what feels good? Is it that which leads to the least amount of suffering? Is morality in the eye of the beholder? Uh, The nature of humans. Here's what someone said. Human beings are insignificant. We are adrift in an infinite universe, briefly occupying a tiny planet, circling a minor star in the corner of an insignificant galaxy. What a depressing statement. Just go ahead. You know. Uh, But let's talk about the nature of humans, highly complex machines, or are they cosmic accidents? Are they sleeping gods? Are humans naked apes? Are they the imago Dei, the image of God? Are they just a highly evolved animal? And what about death? Does death lead to extinction? Reincarnation? Transformation to higher states? Of consciousness or absorption into the one. Answer to human problems. Reason, technology, change consciousness, reinvent yourself, try on different identities. Do you find something that hit, fit, and go to self-help in the bookstore and read everything they have. <laughs> History. Is it a tale told by an idiot, idiot, meaning nothing, full of sound and fury? Or is it linear? Or is it cyclical? Or is it revisionism? Or is it myth? Or is it propaganda? Or is it perspectival? Or is it providential? Is history written only by the people who win, the victors? And the losers have no voice. These are questions that people consider with history. By the way... There is no objective history writing. Why? It's just like you watch a newscast. There's a lot of news that happens in a day. But how do they decide what to put on the news? It bleeds, it leaves. yeah. Well, they make choices. Where do those choices come from? Worldview. Right now we have two parties in our country. We have maybe three. We have sort of the independents, we have the Republicans, we have the Democrats. Uh, total at odds worldview-wise, total. I mean, there's never been more divided, and if you look at the worldviews shared by the parties, radically different. And uh, by the way, all diversity is not great. You need some unity. It's the problem of the one and many, uh, which Van Til talked uh, a lot about. Okay, where are we? Death. Is death the end of existence? Do our souls sleep? Is it an illusion? Is it entrance to the next life? Are we reincarnated? Uh, Does the eternal state uh, include both heaven for some people and hell for others? The view of religion, superstition, some good moral teaching is pluralistic, all points to the one, pathways to the mountaintop, not all from God. Religion is the problem. That's how people view religion. Jesus Christ, a moral teacher, a good example, an avatar, one of many manifestations of God, a guru, a God-man, unique, only Lord and Savior. Is Jesus a man, a myth, a madman, a menace, a mystic, a Martian, or a Messiah? But when you look and listen to people, you'll hear these kind of things being talked about And it is rather interesting. Let me read quickly before we get to the Reformed aspect of it. Here's a few examples that illustrate how your worldview affects the way you see things. Suppose that one day a close friend tells you that she recently met with a spiritualist who put her in touch with a loved one who died ten years ago. Later that day you read an article about a statue of the Virgin Mary that witnesses claim to have seen weeping blood. You also hear a news story on the radio about possible signs of complex organic life discovered on Mars. Your worldview, your background assumptions and presuppositions about God, the origin of nature and the universe, human beginnings, life after death, and so forth, strongly influences how you interpret these reports and how you react to them. They're all, are you getting with me here? They're all worldview-based. Now, I think I've achieved what I wanted to achieve with that. Now let's get into the section called the Reformed World and Life View. When I teach this before, I usually do the Christian world view, but the Reformed view encompasses that. And uh, I want us to spend the balance of our time on that. Does anybody have a question while I try to bring things together here? Or either I'm doing a really good job or you're bored out of your mind. I don't know. Probably a combination of many things. Okay. I think for somehow I lost your packet. All right, a reformed and world life. It, by the way, we didn't look at Scripture, uh, which 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, talks about taking every thought captive to Christ. Colossians 2, 8 talks about not being deceived by uh, philosophy based on the uh, stoichia, is what it is in Greek, the elementary. Pre- Uh, principles, the ABCs of uh, primitive world uh, which Paul often railed against. And then Ephesians 6.10 is just the warfare we have with the powers of darkness and the armor of God. Uh, Those are the biblical basis, basis for talking about these. So let's look at the Reformed tradition and probably the first thing we think about when we think of being Reformed is a Emphasis upon the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God, <clears throat> either you are a God-centered person or you are a man or woman-centered person. Uh, you can't be both. You're either one or the other. And a God-centered person is a person that has a high view. Calvin uh, and Augustine uh, Fundamental Principle, I think this was written by B.B. Warfield, who was uh, by the way do you know bb B- you know his life he had a, a invalid wife and he could never leave the campus of the seminary but he would she was sick the whole time he was a professor there so it limited his uh shall we say ability to travel and teach and speak in impressive places he stayed home and took care of his wife which makes me when i read his stuff pay a little more attention to know that about it. Because that's a great thing. He said this, Perhaps the simplest statement of it is the best, that it lies in a profound apprehension of God in His majesty, with the inevitably accompanying poignant realization of the exact nature of the relationship sustained to Him by the creature as such, and particularly by the sinful creature. He who believes in God without reserve and is determined that God shall be God to him in all his thinking, feeling, willing, in the entire co- in, uh, compass of his life activities, intellectual, moral, spiritual, throughout all his individual, social, religious relations, is, by force of the strictness of all logic, which provides presides over outworking of principles into thought and life, by very necessity of the case, a... God-centered believer. Three points come to fruition as a result. Theism comes to its full rights when we perceive, in the course of events, the orderly outworking of the plan of God, who is the author, preserver, and governor of all things, whose will is consequently the ultimate cause of all. A purity of religious relations is attained when we When an attitude of absolute dependence on God is not merely temporarily assumed in the act, say, of prayer, but is sustained through all the activities of life, intellectual, emotional, and volitional. Soteriologically, it reaches its stability only when the sinful soul rests in humble, self-emptying trust purely on the God of grace as the immediate and sole source of all the work that enters salvation. All these things are formative principles of having, uh being reformed, I think would be the best way to say it. And so the sovereignty of God has always been, and having a sovereign God certainly influences the way that we respond to suffering, the way that we respond to mystery, the way that we respond to everything that happens to us in the world. Um, And the sovereignty of God is very humbling because, uh, frankly, we do not exist for Him to make much of us. We exist to make much of Him. Uh, We are to live and reflect His glory uh, back. Uh, So we are not the central characters in the play. Uh, Anytime we try to write our own script and direct our own movie, it's always going to be a B-movie or worse. It's going to be terrible. But God is the author of everything. He is the sovereign God. And that is a great sense of uh, hope and peace. And so to have a reformed world and life view would first rest on that God is personal, that He's knowable, He's also incomprehensible, but that He is sovereign and He works out His will according to His purposes uh, for His own glory and for our good. One thing That you always need to remember when we speak of God's glory, living for God's glory, is the best possible outcome for us. It is good. That's the good life. All right, second one is the religious nature of all experience. And what I wanted to say about that is there's always sort of been a dichotomy between. Sacred and secular. There are certain things that we do that are sacred and there are certain things we do that are secular and there's a wall between them and uh, therefore if we do just this it doesn't count as much as this Which Luther would scream his head off at us for saying that. But what are we talking about when we're talking about the religious nature of all human experience? Um, glad you asked me because I have the answer to that one. Um, Paul, did you take it? I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Uh, Here it is, man's whole existence, sorry guys, I'll pick it up here. There is no sacred-secular sacred, secret, uh, sacred secular dichotomy, that's dualistic thinking, it's compartmentalization, Uh, Created reality, there is no nature-grace dichotomy. Grace restores nature. What what I'm basically saying about this is, let's say that you're me, a teaching elder, a minister of the gospel, and I live next door to a guy who uh, digs ditches for a living. We both get up, we go to work, we're both believers, we do what we do in order to take care care of our families, to do that which is pleasing God. Who gets more points? Nobody. Nobody. Um, And that was a major point in the Reformation was that the Roman Catholic Church had divided up clergy and laity. It was a very clerical, heavy institution in which people who were nuns, and uh, monks and priests, they were of the higher order. They had the possibility of being canonized as saints. And then everybody else, the hoi polloi, were just down here, and sort of of the masses. And so there was a real denigration of work. Work done honorably uh, is before the Lord, that which pleases Him, and will be rewarded. Uh, at the judgment. And so all experience... It's not that... You know, I often go with Christians and I notice that there's a tendency to baptize an activity that you're doing. That's what I call them. Where, alright, let's say we're going to a hockey game. And so we go to the hockey game and everybody decides, well, why don't we pray before the game? You know, well, that's fine if you want to do it. But that doesn't make the hockey game a better... It doesn't doesn't sanctify it so that you can enjoy it. You can enjoy a hockey game just because it's a hockey game. And there's nothing wrong with that. To me, a reformed world and life view is the most liberating thing I've ever run into. Because before that, I was a fundamentalist. I was a legalist. And, uh, you know, everybody tried to suck the joy out of living for everything you could do. Uh, Who was it? H.L. Mencken, who said a Puritan is someone who's afraid somebody somewhere is having fun and uh that's that's often our lot in christianity uh, you know when it comes to art or music or literature do you only are you only allowed to do christian music are you only allowed to paint jesus by the un nation building for the rapture is that art you know i mean come on there's great value in these things that are part of the beauty of creation uh And so that's part of being reformed as well. Coram Deo, which uh, means before the face of God. Man's whole existence is lived out in the presence of God to whom he is both presently, totally, and ultimately answerable. Uh, The reformers use the term Coram Deo before or in front of God as a way of representing this disposition. Man, whether he admits it or not, lives his whole existence in the presence of the living God. The human starting point is not one's own existence, but the will of the Creator or Lord. Man's only true purpose is to glorify God and enjoy a life that is both defined and given its only true meaning by God. We live before His face. And, you know, there are times when I think I can just sort of check out, but you don't ever get to check out, not with God. Uh, all of these are worthy of a study in and of themselves. The cultural mandate, I want to hit this one kind of hard because there is a distinction between, let's say, uh, Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr, a Lutheran, who wasn't exactly a conservative, wrote a book called Christ and Culture. And he used five terms to provide a model as to how churches relate to culture Uh, the first one was Christ against culture the second one was the Christ of culture the third one is Christ above culture the fourth one is Christ and culture in paradox and finally Christ the transformer of culture and so uh, these models have been modified discussed and debated But essentially, you could say that there are four basic ways, the transformationist model, the relevance model, the countercultural model, and the two kingdoms model. Now, the two kingdoms is a recent emergence. Some would say it's very similar to the Lutheran. I don't think it is exactly. It's more reformed than that. But I'm not convinced. I, I still hold to a very strong transformationist model that we are called to participate in culture. That God gave us a mandate in the book of Genesis. Remember how I tell you that all of life somehow finds its way. The creation mandate is pretty much the idea that God has given human beings authority in the created world and we might call it responsible dominion, but the dominion He's given man in creation is not power to... to, uh, abuse or power to be achieved, but rather stewardship. We have been called to stewardship the creation itself. And so uh I can remember a professor I had at seminary who would get so mad if we brought a styrofoam cup to class full of coffee. And I asked him well, Dad, what are you so upset about? And he said, Well he said, the environment. Aren't you concerned about ecology? Aren't you concerned about environment? He said, a Calvinist ought to be leading the way on crusades about this stuff. And I said, well, you know, i got a family. i got other stuff to do. I said, I'll let you do that. But uh, he was a good guy. I liked him a lot. But he's pretty intense about that. But we've been given work to do. We are to take the responsibility for keeping the earth, for respecting times and seasons, uh, and doing so with integrity. Uh, The charge for both Jews and Christians uh, has been turning dominion into a license for trashing the earth instead of keeping it, exploiting animals versus caring, raping the environment versus developing, language of conquest, military at war with non-human creation. True, not biblical shalom. The Bible is not the problem. It speaks of dominion, but not in the sense of conquest but stewardship, we image God by taking care. God has built into the created order everything we need to discover, to bring out, and to to develop it. God told man to uh, till the earth, to cultivate. And basically to cultivate is cultivating culture. We are to be culture makers, consistent with our calling. And so as a result of that, we have a calling from God. For example, I think Christians ought to be the avant-garde of every possible sphere of study, arts, literature. We should be producing that which is better and and stronger than anyone because of the position we're in. But, um, so, it it extends beyond just... um, I don't want to get too much into this for time purposes. Let me go over it a little bit. Uh, The cultural mandate found in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, here's how different people view our relationship to culture. Paul Marshall said, Most people believe in lifeboat theology. Sin has so corrupted the world it's beyond help. So our goal is to pull people out of the wreckage into the lifeboat. It is as if creation is the Titanic that has hit an iceberg of sin and nothing left to do but to get into the lifeboat. Ship is sinking rapidly. God has given up on it. Now our concern is survival. And any attempt to salvage God's creation rearranging, is like rearranging the deck chairs and polishing the brass on the Titanic. Tasks then get into lifeboats to save people keep them afloat pluck drowning victims out of the water sail on to heaven where all will be well but a truly christian viewpoint is not lifeboat theology but ark theology like moses oh noah excuse me noah noah saved not only the people but preserved the creatures as well the ark is to, uh, not to leave the land but to return and begin again to restore the earth, God has not given up on the world. The creation mandate is still in effect. Now some of my friends who are two kingdom people would say no, Christ has fulfilled all that. No, He hasn't. He will ultimately fulfill it when He returns. But the garden is supposed to become a city. What does that mean? We are given the responsibility to develop, till till the garden, develop creation. God has packed into it everything we need to make life on this earth wonderful, but because of sin, we have misused it, but uh, we are to think God's thoughts after Him, to be creatively constructive, uh, not creatively constructive, but receptive to God's order in creation, and develop, develop it and take it to its full extent. Uh, cultural mandate has always been a huge emphasis of the Reformed world and life view. Uh, I could talk on and on about that, but that's probably enough on that for right now. Where are we? What's the next one? Yeah, the comprehensive lordship of Christ. I'll just tell you uh, Kuyper's. Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch... Uh, they're called neo Calvinist. Uh, Dutch, uh, gosh, he did everything. He was a theologian. He was a prime minister. Um, he was one of these guys that wore multiple hats. He had to be a genius in every way. But he said, There is not one square inch of the cosmos that the Lord Jesus Christ does not say, This is mine. And so our interaction, is the comprehensive lordship of Christ over all reality. That has always been a strong emphasis of the Reformed theology. Stewardship, I've already talked about. We don't own anything, really. Everything is given to us as a, we are responsible stewards and we are to practice that stewardship in reverence and humility, recognizing that, uh, we come into the world with nothing, and as far as I know, I've never seen a hearse pull into you all. Oh, maybe you have. I notice that people, people get buried in their cars now and stuff like that. Uh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, common grace. Anybody know what common grace is? Common grace is the fact that God, by virtue of us being the image of God, though we have sinned, we have marred the image. But we still retain the image. We are glorious ruins, is the way some people say it. And so because of that, men who are not believers in Christ, and women, can see things in the created order and discover them. And, you know, the old saying, a a blind pig finds an acorn every once in a while, and a broken clock is right twice a day. Unbelievers can contribute to the good of the world. They can discover things that may not hold our particular view of uh, faith in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that they have no value. It doesn't mean... Why do we treat them? Because they're the image of God. We respect them and recognize you have to be discerning about it. You also have to see that when people do work like that, it may be uh, tinted by sin. But that's why we use our worldview grid to look through it and see the value of common grace is restraint of the culture from being as bad as it could be. Although I begin, I believe God is beginning to lift His hand uh, of restraint away. Common grace doesn't save, but it does produce creational good that we can use and value from people who aren't... I think all of us know that people who aren't believers who still have accomplished things and done things that are great. Redeeming social structures is just practicing the cultural mandate. Sola Scriptura is the concept of the Bible uh, being superior to Scripture alone. Uh, Now, is all truth God's truth or is it just the truth in Scripture God's truth? All truth is God's truth. All of it is. But the scriptures itself help us determine between things that can err, such as councils and creeds and uh, all of those things that are secondary documents. The Westminster Confession of Faith, as much as I love it, is a secondary document. It doesn't carry the weight or freight of Holy Scripture. So to be solo scripture is to reject tradition as being the final say, or my own personal uh, autonomy as being the final saying what's true and what's not true, is submitting yourself to the index of reality that God has revealed uh, through His people. High view of Scripture. Exceedingly high view of Scripture. Exceedingly high view of preaching in the Reformed tradition. That preaching is... Uh, you know, I, I notice that some of the more contemporary, emerging churches are trying to do away with the sermon uh, simply by doing video snap uh, vignettes and then commenting on it. They don't read the Bible. They don't really preach the Bible. They just talk about how that vignette teaches truth. And you'd be surprised at some of the people who are doing that now. Because they don't think that the average person has the attention span anymore to sit and listen to you know, a 40-minute sermon or a 30-minute sermon for that matter. In seminary, they told us to just preach 20 minutes. They they said, none of you are good enough to preach for 20 minutes. That was always encouraging. Right? So, uh, I had a lot of things I wanted to say about that, but I didn't. So, here's the big difference between being Reformed as a Presbyterian or Christian Reformed, uh, what is it, Uh, Michael Horton's denomination? Which one is that? Yeah, URC. And others, uh, RPCNA. um, uh, There are a number of Reformed denominations, but the consistency with them is, you know, seeing... Uh, being reformed in the broader sense of cultural um, Calvinism rather than just the narrow sense of soteriology. So when somebody tries to convince me that they're reformed but they don't see this other whole aspect of reality, I have a hard time saying, well, great. Uh, It's kind of like when you first get the gospel, it takes it a while to trickle down. And uh, I just usually tell them to keep reading. And uh, finally, a Reformed view of sanctification. There's a very strong emphasis in the Reformed camp on loving God with your mind and loving God with your heart and engaging in what is called a prophetic ministry. First, loving God with your mind is generally referred to as the intellectual dimension of the Christian life, learning truth, uh, all of those kind of things. That are important. We don't, um, there is a tendency among others that think that are very anti intellectual, I guess is the nicest thing. I read Richard Hofstetter's book, Anti Intellectualism in American History, and it was basically a critique of a lot of the what would be called Anabaptist type churches. that we're very hostile toward the life of the mind. Whereas we are called to love God with our minds. What does that mean? Well, you've got to read and try to understand the Bible. And you've got to think God's thoughts after Him. And uh, learn to be critical, not in a negative judgmental sense, but critical in evaluating stuff that comes to you. Um, okay, that's what I have for you tonight. So... I hope I reached my goal. My goal was just to give you a uh, concept of what this is. Uh, And basically, sanctification in the Christian life is really the development in a more consistent world of life view. That's how you... That's why when people get around us who don't know what we are, they get a little nervous. They think these people are weird. I know this is my first experience of being around so-called reformed people. Was I thought, what are, what is the deal? I feel like they know something I don't know, and uh, it sort of felt, you know, like the world was passing me by. And I just thought, you know, they're really smart people, and they seem to be nice in a way, but they're really um, kind of weird. And uh, I don't think there's anything glorifying God by being weird, but being Reformed is, there are not many people like that. You do understand that in this world. This is a minority, beyond minority report of understanding things. But to me, it makes the most sense about how to live in this world and the next. And it provides me with the greatest hope. But for me, it's just freedom. The ability to enjoy life and creation uh, without feeling like I have to be doing something, quote, spiritual every moment. For example, some of you may disagree with this, but I think a father taking his kids to the park and playing with them is as important as his praying for them. He should do both, not one or the other. But there are just numbers of ways that we can uh, teach our children to enjoy life. Okay. Any questions? Good. Yes, sir. Mentioned emotional intelligence previously, but what's the objection to that? They they tell us that how important that is in our profession. If there is an objection. How do they define emotional intelligence? Uh, The ability to judge how to. Respond to, somebody in a not to transformational way of Yeah, but I mean, who can do that? I mean, yeah. name me a man that understands his wife. I don't know anybody <laughs> that understands <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm still on. Uh, <laughs> she knows I say that. I mean, I'm not against it. I think there is something to that. But what I was thinking of more so when I used that was basically discarding uh, intellectual, uh, basically right brain, left brain kind of thing. And the idea that, and those are pretty theoretical. There might be some truth. It might be a common grace insight. But um, yeah, I, I think it is important to learn how to uh, read people the best that you can. But I have been wrong so many times. You ever been taken? God, or I've said just the wrong thing, thinking I was saying just the, this is what this person needs to hear, and uh, it's terrible. How about we pray? Okay, Father, we thank you so much for our time together. We thank you for this topic. Just pray that we would all learn uh, more about what our worldview is. We have one that we would be constantly Uh, aware of growing in our understanding of how to see you and the world and ourselves and our families and our responsibilities as good stewards Uh, and all of these topics that are really uh, full-on, help us grasp them. Pray that everyone would be safe going home tonight and thank you for each person that's here. Pray your blessing upon us all. Amen.